making a slight apology for my voice. It's not quite to the usual standard. But then Bonnie Tyler made a career out of it, so I figure I'll probably get away with it. We're going to um, just change timings around a little bit. We've had, a, obviously, a slightly unusual morning, so we're going to have the, the preach now, and then we're going to have a little bit longer, hopefully, at the end, to be able to respond. We're going to have some more worship at the end, and we're going to be able to really uh, take on board what we've been hearing this morning already, and hopefully some of what Nicola and I are going to share as well. And... Um, and really see what God's going to do. So I'm quite excited that God's got things he wants to say to individuals and to us as a church today. So let's see what happens, shall we? So I'm hoping at some point a PowerPoint is going to appear behind me, very excitingly. So as you all know, we're in the middle of a series of sermons um, entitled Unstoppable God. And we're looking at the healing miracles of Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. There are, I don't know how many, was it 30, something I can't remember, different occasions during those four books in the Bible where we can read about Jesus performing a healing miracle. And we've looked at a number of different aspects of that. We've looked at a number of um, different things that we can draw out from that and we can learn for ourselves about who we are and about who God is. And we're going to look at a couple more of those today. So in a minute, Nicola's going to share one of the stories. Just before she does, I'm going to share um, one of the stories. So we're having two different healing stories today. And then I'm going to draw some conclusions and then we can respond when we get to the end. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of where we're going. So let's see if we get there. So we're looking at two stories in the book of Mark today. One in Mark 8 and one in Mark 9. And on the face of it, these two stories look quite different. They're both healing miracles. They're both miracles that Jesus performed. But he used different methods, different techniques. There were different challenges that he faced. But we can look at both of them together and we can see what we can learn from both of them. And actually, both of them do help with uh, telling a, a similar story. As I said, we've looked over the last few weeks at a number of different aspects. Um, last week, Steve very helpfully talked about um, some of the practicalities of the way that Jesus chose to heal, um, you know, sort of, and sticking his finger in somebody's ear. Um, we've got another one today where Jesus spat at a man who was blind, which doesn't sound very like the sort of thing Jesus would do. Um, but that's what he did. We're not going to go into the details because I think Steve did a really good job last week. If you want to hear about why did Jesus spit at people, then listen to what Steve said last week. I'm not going to, not going to cover that in case you were wondering. But instead, what I want to do is actually look at the context of the setting in which um, Jesus performed these miracles. What was going on around the story? So there was this miracle that took place, these, heal <coughs> these two healings that took place, what was happening um, around them at the time? What's the bigger picture? And we're going to learn something from that. And we're going to discover that these stories aren't just about healing. They're actually about us. They're about you and me. And so we're going to start by looking at the story um, of Jesus healing a blind man. 
And we find this in Mark 8, 22 to 26. I might be getting somebody to come up and read some of these verses for me in a minute. So be warned, youth, okay? Mark, it's up on the screen behind us. So if you've got a Bible, then do feel free to follow along. If not, you can read it on the screen. I'm just going to read it. It's in the New International Version, in case you've got a slightly different version, but it's going to be essentially the same. So, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. So, what's going on? We've got a miracle. Clearly a miracle's taken place. But what's going on around that miracle? So let's have a look. First of all, verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. So where had they been? Where had they come from? They just actually, the few verses before, if you look back in in the chapter in Mark, you'll find that they've just come from Jesus performing another one of his miracles, feeding 4,000 people with a boy's packed lunch. 4,000 people with a packed lunch. Now, that means that there were 4,000 people that had just seen Jesus turn a packed lunch into a feast. So they were ready for a miracle to be performed. They thought, this guy's good. We want a bit more of this. There was nowhere for them to hide. Jesus and the disciples were there. People knew they were there. And they were in a miracle mood. They wanted to see something happen. So, unsurprisingly... These guys had a friend who was blind and they thought, do you know what, I wonder, if Jesus can turn a packed lunch into a feast, Jesus can surely heal my friend's blindness. So they bring him to him. Where is he? He's in Bethsaida, let's go. Takes the blind man along. Jesus, Jesus, my mate's blind, can you heal him? Now, Jesus knew that that was going to happen a lot. But he could only be in one place at a time. Could he respond to everybody that was going to do that? Everybody with a blind friend or a lame friend or someone with a dodgy elbow or whatever it might be, was Jesus going to be able to do that? If he had responded to everybody, it would have completely taken up every minute of every day of his time. So how did he respond? He could have said, okay, everyone who's sick, come here and I'll heal you. He could have walked away and done nothing. But it's in the Bible, the story's told, so as I'm sure you've guessed by now, he did do something. So what did he do? Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside of the village. Now straight away, that makes us ask a question, why did he take him outside of the village? Why not just deal with him there and then? Surely that's, they've gone to the village for a reason, why would you take him outside of the village? Don't know, let's have have a think about that. So he took the disciples and he took this man outside of the village and he performed this healing miracle. But why did he 
do it somewhere that wasn't public? Why not do it where other people could see? Why perform a miracle that was so amazing but people wouldn't actually be there to watch? And then finally, once he had healed the man, and we know that he had healed him because we, the story tells us the progress of the healing through from not being able to see to being able to see a bit to being able to see clearly, Jesus said, go home. Don't go back into the village. The man probably wasn't from Bethsaida. He was probably from somewhere else. And Jesus said, go home. Don't go back into the village. The villagers would have seen this man brought to Jesus. They would have seen Jesus take him out of the village. They would have been expecting him to come back, healed, and this amazing miracle happened. But no, Jesus said, go home. Don't go back into the village. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus want this to be something that was done apparently in private? Or at least not in the public eye. Something's going on that is worth looking at. Jesus doesn't seem to want people to know what he's doing. He still healed the man because he had a heart of compassion. So when somebody in need of um, healing came to him, he was still going to do it. But he didn't want that to be what he was all about. There was a bigger story going on, a different purpose that he was about than just healing. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. Okay? And Nicola's going to talk us through another story in the next chapter. And as you sort of hold that thought, what is this other purpose that Jesus is about? Why is it that Jesus didn't want this to be something that was public? What's that all about? Nicola's going to share a little bit from uh, the next chapter of Mark, and then I'm going to jump up and try and draw a few conclusions. So I shall hand over to Nicola. I don't have quite the gruff voice going on. I'm a bit snotty, sorry. I'll leave it to you to figure out how we've shared our germs this week. Um, Okay, so I'm going to read um, a passage from Mark 9, if you'd like to follow with me. I think it's going to appear anyway, uh, starting at verse 14. This is the the story of Jesus healing a boy possessed by an impure spirit. So, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I bought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they bought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. 
Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. It's quite a dramatic story, isn't it? I imagine being there would have been immense for people watching it. Scary, probably, overwhelming. Um, There's quite a lot going on um, here. Yet again, a crowd has gathered. It's becoming a habit, as Chris said. Word spreads about Jesus. A crowd come to find him, to see what's going on. Jesus wasn't actually there at the beginning of this. He was away with three other disciples. Away sounds like a weekend spa. He was somewhere else with three disciples. Um, So the rest of the disciples were kind of winging it on their own with this crowd of people. Um, Now, they've tried to heal the possessed boy. Well, tried to heal him, tried to um, drive out the spirit. And they failed. This has got to have been a bit demoralizing in front of a big crowd. Words got round that, you know, Jesus is performing miracles. His disciples have been performing, performing these miracles as well in his name. And it's not happening today. Um, Jesus then turns up with the other disciples and gets irritable with them. I was reading this and I was thinking, oh man, I kind of feel sorry for these guys now. Um, They've had the embarrassment, really, of not seeing this spirit driven out, all these crowds watching them, and now Jesus is miffed with them and says to them, how long have I got to stay with you? Um, So I, I kind of feel for them a little bit. Then in front of everybody... Jesus demonstrates his authority, heals the boy, commands the spirit to leave. At the end of this comes the debrief. The disciples are trying to understand why they couldn't do what Jesus had done. And this is the bit that we're going to focus on today, is the debrief. So in verse 28, the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Now in Mark 6, um, verse 7, it tells us that Jesus had given his authority to the disciples over evil spirits. So they've got the authority to do it. Um, Verse 13 of that chapter tells us that they'd enjoyed a lot of success, that all of these disciples, they'd all driven out demons. So they'd done this before. Um, What was different this time? Was it that Jesus had to be there to activate that authority? Uh, We know that's not true because Jesus isn't here in the flesh with us today, but we experience and we know the power of Jesus. So that couldn't have been the case. So what was different this time? Why couldn't they do it? In verse 29 of the story, Jesus pinpoints why it didn't happen. And he says it's because of prayerlessness. The disciples hadn't prayed. The disciples maybe had been coasting on previous successes. They'd cast out demons before. Maybe they could do it at will. We've done it before, we can do it again. They may be started to take it for granted and fail to rely on God in this situation. But they couldn't afford to rely on past successes, trade on past victories, and neither must we. So an illustration just to maybe help us understand 
um, about our dependence on God and that need to keep relying on God, not trusting on what we've known before, is the Israelites in the desert. Um, For those of you who don't know the story, the Israelites fled Egypt. They're in the desert. They're there for a pretty long time. They're there for 40 years. They run out of their food very quickly that they'd managed to take with them. So God provides them manna from heaven. I was having a bit of a read-up about this a couple days ago, and uh, in Numbers it says that manna was like, um, they used to grind it down and make it into like a cake. And somewhere else in the um, Old Testament says that manna was... Uh, like a wafer made with honey. I was kind of thinking, I could be in faith for my daily food if God was going to send cake down on a daily basis. I think I, think I, could, I could grow in my faith. Chocolate cake, carrot cake, not quite sure it was of that, that ilk. Um, but God wanted them to learn to trust him on a daily basis. So when they started to store up the manna, and they'd say, well, let's just keep a bit. Let's not eat so much today. We'll keep it, and then we've got some for tomorrow, just in case God doesn't provide. It would rot. They'd wake up the next day, and it'd be no good. They couldn't eat it. But God would provide more. And he needed them to understand that they had to learn to rely on him on a daily basis. It's important for us to recognize and acknowledge that our abilities um, are tied directly to our faith in God. Each of us needs to recognise that our ability to be effective in God's work is completely reliant upon us being fully surrendered to him all the time. Not some of the time. Not maybe when there's some spiritual warfare going on or particularly tricky issues pop up. Not, it's fine, I've been doing this Christianity lark now for 20, 30 years. I've got it nailed, I know what I'm doing, nothing shocks me. No, we need to be fully surrendered to God all the time and fully surrendered means every thought every word every action every decision given over to God the disciples hadn't seen the need to pray and fast in this situation because they were relying on past victories and consequently they didn't experience the power of God because of this there's only one way to do God's work and that's God's way Now, the Lord has the ability to make things happen. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? (laughs) Do we fervently pray for it? Do we take all the problems in our lives to God? And if not, why not? He loves us. He has a wonderful plan for our lives. Do we want to see the fullness of that plan? I know I do. But I'll be honest with you, I don't always surrender to it. I don't. If you would like a model of a a really good, faithful Christian, trusting God all the time with everything, um, look no further. I'm sure I'll be able to find somebody for you um, (laughs) that can model that. I can't. I'm not. I fall short hugely. Um, I'm I'm just going to share an example with you of something that really challenged Chris and I this week as we were unpicking this. Um, I won't go into our story, lots of you know it anyway, Um, our circumstances are, it's a story about finances, our circumstances is that we enjoyed financial financial security um, some years ago when we started out in married life and um, up until about five years ago, then we had a change in circumstances, Chris was out of work, he remained out of work for two years, Um, we lived off what we had and then when it got to zero, um, Chris started work again, thankfully. Um, and we, we live very well. We, we don't 
want for anything, food and clothing, and we live in a lovely home. Um, but if financial security is what does it for you, then our situation would make your eyes water um, because we don't have that. Um, just this week, Mark Carney did some work doing, and um, we ended up spending hundreds of pounds on wheels and exhausts, and, and then I had a horrible rattle in my car, and I took it back, and they've said, oh, that's the catalytic converter, so that's going to be several hundred pounds. You'll need to get that fixed. And immediately, we were like, we don't have that. We don't have that money. 